This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I will get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend, Sean Lake, co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code, they are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals and the courage of Glenn Doherty, listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bubs co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot and they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May and again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director, Will Ayers. 
This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorne, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorne. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show paramedic and author of A Thousand Naked Strangers and American Sirens, Kevin Hazard. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into EMS non-emergency transport versus the 911 system, some of his career stories, burnout, his transition out of EMS, his latest book which details the incredible story of the black men who became America's first paramedics, and so much more. Now before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Kevin Hazard. Enjoy. Well, Kevin, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? I'm in Atlanta in Georgia. Brilliant. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. 
So I was born uh, upstate New York in Albany, which is, you know, classic Rust Belt kind of city. Um, state capital is there, so it's got a little bit of industry, but a lot of little towns around it were sort of, you know, slowly choking off by the time I came along. And, uh, you know, pretty normal um, for that area, pretty normal family, you know, big Catholic family, uh, you know, blue collar um, my parents divorced before, I think before I was really like aware of what was going on. I was pretty young. So that, I think it was a benefit to that, you know, to, to that just always being the norm. Um, I hear people who go through a divorce and it sounds like it's a pretty miserable experience for them. So, you know, I'm happy to have, uh, slept that one out, but, uh, you know, it was in my particular house, it was just my, uh, my sister and I, but you know, everybody, we had so many, aunts and uncles and cousins. My mom was kind of the only one who, you know, had went small, but, um, yeah, I mean, just a big, you know, kind of a big typical, you know, everybody in your business sort of family. Now, what is, what did your parents do as far as occupation? My, my dad, he, most of my childhood, he was uh, one of those guys that climbs telephone poles. So he worked for, um, you know, the technology was ever shifting, of course, but you know, he worked for either phone or cable companies. Um, and he was that dude, you know, you look up, I don't, I guess you really don't see it anymore, you know, but before the advent of bucket trucks, there was a guy with uh, these big spikes on his boots that would walk up the telephone pole to do work. And that was him, which is kind of cool, you know, being a little kid and, you know, everybody talks about like putting on your parents' shoes. Um, you know, my dad had this really badass pair of boots with these metal spikes on them. I remember thinking that was really cool. And uh, he had these like vice grip hands, you know, from like holding onto these poles and turning these wrenches. So, you know, like these big Popeye forearms, he's not a big guy. Uh, I was probably a foot taller than him by the time I got to high school, but, you know, he was just one of those like classically strong, you know, blue collar kind of dudes. Um, and my mother, she started out as a nurse and when I was in maybe, let's say third or fourth grade, young, uh, mid eighties, she was stuck with a dirty needle. And this was kind of, uh, you know, height of the AIDS crisis. You know, it was really coming into everybody's uh, consciousness and the Brian White story was floating around and it just kind of freaked her out. And she got out, she went back to school and she um, wound up working in the accounting department of the New York State Thruway, which is the city, the state's big highway system. Yeah, I think that'd be terrifying. I remember I was a little boy when the whole AIDS thing, you know, kind of blew up. And at eight years old, I was like, I'm going to get AIDS from everything. You know, I was reading mm -hmm. all these books and everything. Like, none of us knew. It was kind of like very, very early COVID. But then, you know, sadly, as it unpacked, it almost shifted to like, oh, we're okay. As long as you're not gay or a drug addict, we'll be fine. You know, and it was kind of, I think the pendulum swung almost too far the opposite way. Yeah, we were actually watching this weird thing last night about sort of like why is Gen X so grumpy and um, or, or, or so jaded, so cynical. <laughs> and it, it it made the argument that if we came along in 68, which is, you know, before my time, but, um, you know, I'm at the tail end of Gen X. The start of it is basically like Walter Cronkite saying, hey, we're going to we're going to lose the Vietnam War. Um, and then everything that follows is like that then you know, Nixon and Watergate. And then, you know, the, you have these issues in the seventies, oil crisis, 
you know, demoralized country, inflation, then the 80s come and you feel like, oh, maybe things are going to get better. And then the AIDS crisis. So it was like one thing after another. Um, and yeah, I mean, we, it, 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 it was kind of, it was a little bit uh, terrifying to be in the middle of that. But I, I think, you know, I think people were like desperate to come up with a reason for why they were not going to, you know, why they didn't need to worry about this. And of course, prejudices just made it super easy, you know, it's particularly at that time, very easy to say, oh, well, this is, you know, with the, with the gay cancer, you know, you always heard that, oh, it's gay cancer, um, which is the, like, if you think about the fact that doctors, you know, didn't immediately correct everybody and say, you know, we're genetically speaking, we're all just the same mush of cells. You know, if you think you're, because of your sexual preferences, you're going to be immune to a disease. Like that's such a bizarre thought. Yeah. Well, it's the same bizarre thought that, you know, underlying health having zero impact on the ability of a virus to kill you, which was completely yeah. suppressed this last two years. So there's a uh, medical bias once again. <laughs> no such thing as comorbidities. <laughs> Well, speaking of, of service, when you were, you know, a young man, were there any family members or kind of mentor figures in military or first responders at that point? Yeah, my my dad had been in like Navy Reserve. I don't know exactly what that entailed um, back, you know, in the seventies or something, and then all of my grandfathers, my, my parent, my dad's parents are divorced and then remarried. And both of those second marriages lasted. So I wound up with three sets of grandparents instead of two. All of my grandparents, have, all my grandfathers have been in the military. Um, two sort of showed up at the tail end of World War II and kind of did a whole lot of nothing other than just be called up. One was sent to Korea um, and he had this wild story about having seen a UFO um, over the harbor. And then I have an uncle who my dad has these twin brothers who I just thought were the coolest people. My, my parents were the oldest um, in their respective families. And they got pregnant with my sister when you know, my mom did when they were super young. So we, we had this, this cohort of uncles and aunts that were just, you know, maybe 10 years older than us that we idolized. And my dad had these twin brothers who were young guys. And uh, one of them went into the army and, you know, he, he eventually went to ranger school and jump school and, you know, he did all this really cool stuff. And I just remember being totally, totally fascinated with all that, you know, um, you know, at that period of time, you know, it was sort of platoon and full metal jacket, uh, you know, apocalypse now, like all these like really important movies were hitting us like the perfect time. You know, if you were a kid and you're watching that, I mean, even though theoretically they were all trying to tell you that war is not a good thing. You know, to that soundtrack, uh, and when you're 10, war seems pretty damn cool. So I had a handful of, of family members when I was young who had been in the military. Now, I've got to go back to the Korea story. With all these <laughs> UFO, you know, sightings, and, you know, I, I'm still baffled why the Chinese would send a balloon to spy on us when there are satellites in the space, but that's just my, you know, white belt thinking. I, I don't think that's a good strategy personally, but now we're hearing all these UFO sightings again. What was he seeing in South, uh, excuse me, North Korea um, back then? So he's on guard duty one night and he's looking out over, and I'm trying to, I'm usually pretty good at geography. I'm trying to call up what Harbor he must've been looking at, but, um, He's he's standing on a dock and he's his job was truly boring. Um, he was guarding uh, material that had been dropped off from ships, and so he's just sitting, you know, 
19 year old kid sitting in the dock twiddling his thumbs and out from the very far end of the water he sees this light start to like come toward him and he assumes that maybe it's a plane or something but then it kind of darts left and darts right and it goes way down to the water and then shoots straight up in the air and it's just it's moving in ways that don't make any sense and he watches this for several minutes and then it just disappears gone never to be seen again he swears to this day um that what he saw was a ufo the tricky thing with my grandfather is that he is like the king of tall tales um he will tell you the most outrageous he he's the um so my when my dad's parents remarried he's the guy who remarried my grandmother um he was he was raised on an indian reservation in canada and he always would talk about you know having been at wounded knee and you know that he knew sitting bull and he like he had all these crazy stories so like he knew you didn't believe him but they were so detailed and so real that you just you couldn't help but listen to him and love them that's one of those stories like like obviously the sitting bull thing you know n- not true but when you listen to this like it's difficult to parse out how much of that is him being him and how much of that is a true story. And of course he insists it's true. It's the one that he, he doesn't really like laugh and wink when he tells you that one, he's kind of serious, but he's, he's told so many stories through the years that, um, you know, sort of entertain and confuse us that, uh, it's, it's impossible to know exactly what the truth is with that one. So I will, I will go to my grave saying he saw a UFO. How about that? That's that cry wolf story, isn't it? The one time he actually saw something, he's like, (laughs) shit, I wish I hadn't told so many stories. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, then, when you were at school age, what about um, uh, sports and, and activities? What kind of, you know, athletically were you doing at that point? I was one of the smallest kids in my neighborhood. Um, I lived in this this great part of town. Um, I was lucky, and my neighborhood was full of kids. And we were bordered on all sides. Uh, we had four lane roads to two sides, and then woods to the other two sides. So the neighborhood was really compact. So everybody's parents would just say like don't cross the four lane roads, which we did, and don't go farther than the woods, which we did. But it gave them a sense of like, okay, we know where you're going to be. So stay within those parameters. And we would wake up first thing in the morning and not come back to look at dark. So we were gone all the time. And, you know, it, I mean, you know how that is. It instantly turns into Lord of the Flies and you're immediately trying to figure out what kind of trouble you can get yourselves into. And it just gets worse and worse. Tons of fun. But, um, you know, it is, you, it's like a pack mentality, you know, they, everybody, you kind of have to establish your place in the pack. And I was until high school, I was very short and very, very skinny. Um, I, I stayed skinny all the way through high school. I mean, I think I graduated. I was like six, 240 pounds or some ridiculous, you know, uh, flagpole shape that I had. But when you're the smallest and the skinniest, like you've got to find a way not to become the one that gets pounded on. So I just, realized early on like oh if i'm crazy then the bigger kids will think that's cool or at least funny and then i'll be in so i just became the crazy kid and so we played backyard football like i would be the one like give me the ball i'm gonna run up the middle we played kill the carrier all the time like i would rush into the middle of the pack to get it and you know just get wailed and just bounce back up and keep going so i loved from a very early age loved contact sports you know football, hockey, lacrosse. I wrestled for a couple of years. I sort of like half-assed my way through about a year of boxing. I just, I loved, um, I loved impact. And I, it, it started from being that small kid who's like, all right, how do you, 
you know, like I wasn't naturally that super funny kid. You know, some people, you always hear that story of like, you know, comedians are always born because they're kind of nerds who learn like, oh, wow, I'm really funny. Um, I wasn't funny enough to do that, you know? So it's like, I'll just be this crazy kid that everybody's like, that dude's fucking nuts, you know? Um, and it worked for me. Now, what about the written word? Did you have any kind of, uh, were, you, were you drawn to English and books and writing, et cetera, at the school age? Or was that something that bloomed later in life? No, I was doing it all the time, but I came from a very non-literate family, you know, like nobody reading books was not a big deal in my house. Um, nobody, you know, we, we didn't, nobody was subscribing to the New York times or the New Yorker. Or those, you know, those kind of conversations were not being had. Nobody was discussing, you know, important writers or any of those things that were going on in other households. Um, so I was doing it, but I didn't necessarily know why or, or what I was doing. You know, I had these notebooks and I would just write these stories like the first one I remember doing is in the third grade. So it had been going on for quite a while. And I just continued that. I think through high school, it was just, it was just this thing that I never put words to. And then there were two things that happened in quick succession when I was in the very last couple of weeks of college. One was a professor read this paper. I was a history major, this paper that I turned in and he commented on like, oh, wow, you actually can write. And then the other so two weeks later, weirdly enough, um, I was dating the girl who would eventually marry and she saw me writing something and she's like, well, why don't you do that? You know, cause I was sort of lost about what I was going to do after college. And I was like, no, you, like you can't make a living doing that. Like this is, you know, cause I didn't come from that kind of world. I came from like, you go to an office or you get a job and you show up at 8am and you work till six, whatever. And I was like, you can't do that. You can't make a living off that. And she said, tell that to Stephen King. And it was just sort of like this. Like, oh, like you're right. Like, it is a thing people do. And it is something theoretically that I could do. So I'd always done it without really giving any thought to it, you know? Now, you talked about kind of being aimless at that point. I know you ended up at the Citadel. So walk me through what your career aspirations were and how you found yourself in the world of the Marines. Citadel's a strange place, man. Um, I didn't have any aspirations other than I knew I wanted to like travel. I knew I wanted to do crazy things. I wanted to go around the world. I wanted to do something interesting. I think maybe in some far recesses of my mind, I think I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't, again, I didn't really, you know, know how to put a name to that. I knew I wanted to escape. I wanted to get as far from uh, where I grew up as possible. You know, it just, you grew up in a, in a, big family, like everybody knows your business in a small town. I just wanted to be away from all that. I'm not a, I'm not a natural joiner, you know, like had I gone to a regular school, I wouldn't have joined a fraternity. Um, kind of, you know, I, I can't stand like, uh, assumed identities, you know, or like, Oh, you're part of this. So therefore you're one of these people. Um, and so I just wanted to get far away and I wanted it to be someplace kind of fun. And my senior year, this, teacher that I had. Um, I'm not sure why he thought I would be a good candidate for this, what he saw in me, but he handed me this brochure for the Citadel. And he was like, here, you should try this out. You should go look, you might be interested in this. And I looked at it and uh, it was in Charleston, South Carolina, which I did. I mean, I knew, I knew nothing about that, but I knew it was far. And I assumed that it was warm. 
And I was like, I'll give this a shot. So I applied and I got accepted. I did not know what to do with that. You know, I was like, well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> what is this? So we drove down there um, over spring break, my senior year. That's how late, you know, I think people now like seem to know when they're going to go to school as a junior. This is a couple of weeks before graduation. And we drove down and immediately, like if you've ever been to Charleston, um, it's a very seductive city, you know, uh, it, it's hundreds of years old on a peninsula that, you know, can neither expand nor contract. So it's just these old winding cobblestone streets and old buildings and um, tons of cool history. And just, you know, it's surrounded on two sides by, by rivers and on a third by a harbor. And it's just a beautiful place. And so right away I was in love with it. And then it was so foreign, you know, you grew up in upstate New York and you find yourself in Charleston, South Carolina and, you know, the culture was so vastly different. I was blown away. So I just thought, yeah. And then the Citadel thing, you know, it was like, I don't know what any of this is, this military academy thing, but it sounds like an adventure. So screw it. And so I did. I just, I I joined um, and really, or, or I didn't join, I, 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 you know, accepted and I went and, uh, you know, it was, it was fun. It was a good four years. At the end of it, you know, they, they really, from all angles, you know, you get pressed to, to join the military. People want, you know, the Air Force wants you, the Army wants you, the Navy, the Marines, everybody wants you. And at that time, um, it's funny, it might have been different if I graduated later, but at the time, you know, mid to late 90s, peacetime Army sounded boring, you know, um, getting sent to Missouri to guard tanks or something. I was like, God, why would somebody do that? So I got accepted into the Peace Corps. Um, one of my majors was French and I had done a, a study abroad in the South of France. And so I had some French and they were going to send me, um, to the Ivory coast to teach English. And I was set to do that. And then I met this girl, ultimately I married, but she was like, Hey, you know, very cool. Um, I will not be here in, you know, several years when you return. So, but go and have fun. When she said that, I was like, Oh crap. Now what do I do? So I, I decided not to do that, but then I, but that left me with no idea of what to do. So I graduated completely, completely, you know, lost about where I was going to go and what I was going to do. And I went up as a salesman in a, you know, um, uh, for a computer software company, which is the absolute worst place for someone to be if they're looking for adventure and not sure how to get there. Like it's the, it's the least adventuresome thing I could have chosen, unfortunately. Now, what kind of sales were you doing? Because I, one of my jobs, um, I, I, very long story, very short, was told I was colorblind in England and I couldn't be a firefighter. It was what a person in a white coat in the school told me. So for years, I believed them. And I wandered around aimlessly and ultimately circled around to the very profession I, I realized I wanted to be when I was a kid. But one of the jobs that I had was in London was a salesman. And it was literally cold calling businesses, cold calling on the streets and it brought a, an interesting skill set, but you couldn't be any further from a sense of purpose than being a salesperson, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, if you believe in your product um, and in some way you're drawn to that world, I can see where you would get satisfaction out of it because it's immediate, right? Like you, you make a sale, you've made the sale. Like it's, it's kind of like painting a wall, you know, it's very cathartic because you can see the progress. I was doing phone sales. So I'd sat in an office and I just had this list of people I was supposed to call. And it was, um, it was industrial, like it, it organized 
industrial plants. So like um, staffing and machinery and maintenance and all this other stuff could be, you could download all your input, all of your information, these things, and it would track everything. So I was calling, um, you know, I'm calling these huge manufacturing sites in New Jersey and Pittsburgh and trying to sell them, you know, and talking to these guys who were like, yeah, you know, you know, like some dude in New Jersey, who's like working a cement plant. I remember I had one guy named Tony Jacopino, and uh, so I'm calling, you know, I'm like, hey, can I speak with Tony Jacopino? And the guy was like, yeah, it's Tony Jacopino. Yeah, what can I do for you? What do you want? You know, and like very intimidating because like that guy did not want to talk to me. And I'm 22 and I'm like, uh, well, I'm trying to sell you some software. And he's like, you kidding me? You know how much cement I'm trying to make you a kid? Um, it was horrible. Yeah, it was the worst. It was the worst job. Was, and what made it even worse was that there were people who were good at it. That was the most demoralizing thing was that there were people who could walk in not feel self-conscious, place the phone calls, make the ask, get the buy and earn, you know, 60 some odd, which when you're 22 and you have a job that's making 65 grand or more, like that's, you know, that's, that's Jeff Bezos money. And so it was really, God, you want to talk about feeling bad about yourself? Not only was I bored and not in the right place, but I was failing when other people around me were succeeding wildly. It was, it was terrible. It was a terrible nine months. So when I was at this sales place, you know, there were there were the kind of you know financial bonuses if you hit them, and I was I was quite good at it at one point. But the the kind of lure was the the top guy, and it was all a big pyramid scheme. But the top guy had this Lotus and you know these fancy clothes, and I just it didn't mean anything to me at all. So I think that is what maybe is the difference between some people in the business and sales world, and especially the people that end up wearing a uniform is a lot of us don't care about the, the the motivating factors that are you know financial in the business world and you get fulfillment from from service so that's what mm -hmm. i found is that even though i was quite good at it i got nothing out of it you know and, and we weren't yeah. selling anything bad we were it was a pretty good kind of promotional um system that they had and these people got really cheap gym memberships or or hair salon appointments or paintball and some you know other random stuff and they got a good value for what they paid for and they got people through the door but i just found it completely unfulfilling and couldn't give a shit whether i ended up with a fancy car one day yeah no i i <laughs> if my wife were sitting here right now she'd be high-fiving you i mean my life has been a series of uh you know very unlucrative decisions um, because, you know, I, I agree with you. I think there's some people who are driven by experience, who are driven by uh, some sort of sense of like wh how, whatever you want to, you know, um, call it service, duty, um, of giving back, of being part of something bigger than yourself, whatever it is. You know, I think I somebody asked me one time, like, what is it about EMS people? And, um, you know, I, I think if you, for a second, if you sort of like, because we both did it, you know, we can easily scrape away the artifice and you know, for just for a minute, remove any, any positive from it. Like what is it that makes people stay? Um, so many of them were looking for something, you know, they were looking for a place that they felt they belonged, not the people who came in and last 18 months, but the ones who like stick it out and make a career and like find themselves there, they were looking to be found. And you know, that certainly has always been the case for me. You know, I think since I left home and probably before um, that, you know, whatever urge made me want to leave home, I was looking for whatever it was that I belonged, whatever, you know, like the place where I felt like I fit in. And there's, if there's anything that is more like a family than, you know, 
you hear veterans talk about that with the military. I certainly experienced that with an ambulance. I've seen it firsthand, though I never worked for a fire department. I've seen it firsthand with fire departments. There is, there is something, um, there's something to that for sure. When you look back now, I mean, when we get to journalism as well before we get to EMS, but when you look back, I think one of the least acknowledged elements of the mental health conversation in first responders is what happened to us before we ever put the uniform on in the first place. And I think, and if you look actually even at the data, um, there's a thing called the ACEs score, acute childhood experiences. Um, and from what I understand, most of us have like it's up to 15 and it's like 13 to 15 as most first responders. And it makes sense. You know, a lot of us, if we were a victim in some way, shape or form, whether it was bullying, I was very, very small as a kid as well, or whether it was actual abuse or exposure to addiction, et cetera, et cetera then there's a sense of wanting to be the protector. And there's also a sense of the adrenaline excitement allowing you to suppress the noise, kind of bury down some of the trauma that you had when you were younger. When you look back, maybe not even just the childhood, but you know, right before you put the uniform on yourself, were there any elements of trauma you think that contributed to um, not only your journey into that service, but maybe any challenges you had once you were wearing the uniform? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, my my mother remarried, um, and the guy that she married, uh, I mean, he was an incredibly mean person. You know, um, so from the he moved into our house when I was in second grade. So when you're in second grade, you know, an adult, an adult male is a huge human being. You know what I mean? Like the way that you might look at some defensive lineman as being like, God, oh, that's a big human. Like that's the way you know your parents look when you're little. I try to remember that when I'm doing with my own kids, like how much bigger I am than them and how, even if they don't show it, there's a physical intimidation factor. Um, but he was, he was just a really mean guy and, you know, he, it didn't happen often, but he would kick us and he was, but he was constantly screaming constantly. So, you know, I grew up with that when that happens in your house, and maybe this is why I wanted to leave, you know, um, when that happens in your house, you don't feel like, where is your safe place? Where can you go to, like, where do you feel like you can be you all the time? And I certainly did not feel like I could be me in my house. You know, anything that you did that drew attention, drew his attention and his attention was not good. So that, that was always there, which, you know, again, probably, you know, a second ago I was talking about, you're looking for a place to belong that was surely a big part of it because I, you know, home was not a place that felt like a safe, secure home where I belonged and that's where I was supposed to be and I was welcome and part of the crew. That was, it was the opposite of that. And yeah, I think you, you, part of you wants to, um, you know, fill that void and then part of you wants to be the opposite of that. You know, like you hear, always hear, you can, th those experiences affect you in one of two ways. You either become, the person or they become the the negative role model the you know when you say okay that's what i'm not going to be and part of not being the abuser is like i'm going to be the helper i'm going to be you know and i i find myself doing that you know i i don't know why i get a i get a very strange sense of satisfaction out of doing something for that i'm not going to get anything out of for a stranger um and i'm sure it probably all is rooted back into the, all that stuff you know Absolutely. Well, I talk about that a lot with, you know, 
there's so much division and, and hatred if you allow that particular lens to occupy your household or your, your device. But, you know, you, I think most people would admit when they do something as bad and ethical, they feel it in their body. And, and you know, the root of whatever philosophy you subscribe to, whether it's religion, whether it's something that's, you know, a-religious, there's an intrinsic reward system when you're just a good person. And so I think that's one of the things that, you know, that we kind of thrive on. We don't get well paid. We work, you know, crazy hours. We're sleep deprived. We're stressed with all these things. But, and I, I was writing about this today on one of the posts. Usually it's not even pulling someone out of a fire. It's not anything heroic. It's those, those little moments of kindness and compassion. It's cleaning an elderly lady up and putting her back to bed when her now frail husband is feeling so guilty and so full of shame because he can't pick the love of his life up anymore. Those are the little human experiences that would leave me absolutely glowing when we drove away. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. There's just the thing I talk about a lot, or at least I have on several occasions or short version of the story is it was a guy we used to pick up all the time. Always a jerk. Um, homeless guy just in every service has them, you know, like your regulars, and this guy was just particularly rude uh, for whatever reason. He was just difficult. And when you, when the description came out, you knew who it was. And it was like, oh, um, which I'm sure probably tainted his experience too, right? Because every ambulance crew who showed up and saw him probably, he saw through the window, he saw that look in their face, you know, the, he saw them deflate like, oh, this guy again. So I pick him up one day. It's a rainy day. I'm very much affected by weather. Um, so I'm just sort of feeling gloomy. And I'm in the back of this ambulance and he's sitting on a stretcher and he's just being his usual jerk self. And so I just, I kind of like, you know, you know, every once in a while they'll, they'll catch you. Like you have your human version of you and in your EMS version of you, you would never allow the things that you allow in your EMS version to happen in real life, right? Like you're walking down the street, normal clothes. Somebody says one of those things to you or takes a swing at you. You're going to react totally differently. I've been, you know, I can't tell you how many times people have taken a swing at me in the back of an ambulance. I, I never once punched back. You know, that's just, that's not the reaction. But every once in a while, they'll catch you off guard and you'll just react like a normal person. And so he said something to me and I just kind of snapped back at him for a second. We kind of like back and forth. And I stopped and then I realized like, oh, wow, I just kind of lost it. And I sat there for a second. And in that, in that moment of silence, I was like, okay, let me just ask this. I said, Why? You know, you get picked up all the time. Like, we don't call you, you call us. And you're 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 always a dick. Like, why is that? What what's going on here? And bear in mind, I'm 26, maybe 27. So I'm I'm like young and, and totally inexperienced in the world. And he looks at me and he says, uh, I've got AIDS and I'm dying. And my family has kicked me out, and I don't have friends, and I know that I'm gonna die alone. And I'm scared and it makes me upset. And so I just take that out on whoever I encounter. And it was like an incredibly honest moment for him, like for him to be, for him to respond to my question that way tells you that he's just waiting for someone to say why. And nobody had ever said why until now. And I didn't know how to respond to that. You know I mean? Again, I'm so young and this is not what they teach you in school. You know, you learn how to, do all you you learn how to give dopamine in in a course of ten years? I think I gave dopamine twice, right? Like you spend all this time learning the dopamine calculation. Nobody ever says like, "Hey, here's how you deal with somebody who's going through something horrible," and when that really should be the focus. And um, 
you know, so I just sat there. There was nothing I could say. All I could do, I just apologized. And he didn't apologize. He just nodded. And we just rode sort of in, um, you know, in silence on the, in the way to the hospital. It was like, you know, we, we had made some kind of a breakthrough um, as, you know, as uh, minor as it might have been. Well, I mean, that's so pertinent. I, I think one of the best kind of ways of thinking of things is not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you. And that I wrote a I wrote a book a couple of years ago myself, and one of the chapters I talked about one of my very first calls in my very first fire departments, and the tones went off, and there was just this chorus of groans and eye rolling, and I'm like, you oh, know, what's going on here? I'm brand new, you know, wide eyed rookie. We get on the rig, get to the scene. It was a man down, quote unquote man down. There's already some uh, some police officers from that department kind of standing around, you know, arms folded and just looking at this dude who's unconscious on the pavement. The rest of the crew gets out and they just join the semicircle. And, you know, I'm a rookie, but I'm by that, you know, when I first joined the fire service, I was already like 27. So I wasn't a kid. So I'm like, well, fuck it. I'm just going to go and assess this guy, make sure, you know, number one, he's alive. And number two, see if we can figure out what's going on. And so anyway, I, you know, do an assessment. Yeah, he's definitely intoxicated. Um, and so I then, all right, well, let me go through his pocket, see if there's any signs of, you know, what's going on. And I find a piece of paper and it's a blood test result. And just like your story, he was HIV positive. So the lack of compassion around these people, they were like kicking him, hey, get up, get up. This man had obviously clearly just found out that he has a condition that's going to take his life. I'm sure like most people, he then went to the bar or whatever, you know, drank to deal with the emotion and then found himself on the floor. And the very people that we taxpayers pay to take care of us were the ones that were judging him you know, at that moment. So that was, as you said, you know, you can either become part of the tribe if, if it's negative or you can say, I'm never going to do that. That was my, I'm never going to do that moment. I'm never going to forget that these are human beings, whether they're prostitutes or homeless or addicts or even gangbangers. These were all toddlers once laughing and, you know, kicking a ball around and then life happened and they became some of these characters that we meet on the street. And I think that's such a hard thing to maintain as you get beaten down in this career. Yeah. Well, especially because there's a balance to be stricken. There are people who call daily and there's nothing wrong with them. And uh, they want to be picked up by the ambulance. They want to go to the hospital, whatever their reasoning may be. And you get used to them and you, you know, if you were to show up with one of these people at the hospital with a full workup and an IV and all this stuff, the doctors would be like, dude, what, <laughs> how do you not know that this is this person and this is what she does six times a week? Like we had a woman who was such a regular that when she got to the public hospital in Atlanta, they would just, you know, they would like, she would immediately jump off the stretcher, and, you know, like she, she always had a seizure. Um, she went all the way. I mean, she peed herself. And uh, so the public would be like, oh, my God. And reality was she was just laying there. And so we'd pick her up. We'd bring her to the hospital. Um, she could write her own PCR. Like She had been there that many times. Someone said, if you hand her a PCR, she, she knows what to do. And she would get to the hospital, hop off the stretcher. And then she would just go and she would move stretchers around, you know, around the ER. She would go up. If they were short beds, she would go up to floors, get beds, come on down. She was just, you know, looking for some place to be. So there's a balance between knowing um, – who do I pick up on a regular basis and what's usually going on with this guy? So you, like that index of suspicion works two ways, right? Like that was to me the always the trickiest part about being a brand new medic was knowing like when to pull the trigger. You know what I mean? Like when, 
it, it is this person's chest pain. Chest pain is this person's whatever complaint, you know, like what exactly is going on and how do I, what are the small details that are going to tell me which of these things are going to require like everything and which of these things are going to require me to sort of like sit back and ask questions and figure out exactly what's going on, especially when they tell you like, like hyperventilation is a perfect example of this. Everybody thinks they're dying. The patient thinks they're dying. You know, the firefighters who got there 45 seconds before you might think they're dying. So there's medical professionals, there's family, there's friends, and there's the patient who are all saying, I'm dying. And you have to parse out like, no, actually, you're not. Because you're the one who's going to have to face a doctor, right? You're the one who's going to have to be standing in an ER and explaining why you gave steroids and uh, albuterol and mag sulfate to this person who was having a, a hyperventilation. And you're the one who's going to look like an idiot and going to get called onto the carpet. So you have to suss this thing out fairly quickly and then figure out like, okay, how, how do I, how do we calm you down? And um, so that is the trickiest thing is that that balance of figuring out when to do it. But in there, you cannot lose sight of the fact that your job still is to be here and to help people. And if you're going to, even if you understand, okay, I know what this guy's deal is. Like he calls six times a week and he's always drunk and I'm just going to pick him up and take him. There's a way to do it without being a jerk. You know, I've always said not everybody deserves respect, but everybody deserves decency. And I think therein is probably, you know, that's the thing to for me that I always keep in mind. You know, it's like, hey, this this guy's a pain and he's always going to be a pain, but th th there's no call for me to be an ass, you know? Absolutely, yeah. On our worst ones, I would just go sit in the the captain's chair, you know, behind the behind the stretcher, and just not say anything. So if I yeah. wasn't talking to you, that was because you're a giant asshole. If I was talking to you, you were every everything else. But yeah, I mean, yeah. the worst ones, you just posey them and give them a cocktail, and they go to sleep to sleep anyway. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, then I want to get to your journey to EMS, but just quickly. Um, Talk to me about post-sales, how you found journalism, and then walk me through your journey into EMS from there. So like I said, I'm very unhappy with my sales job. And I started in June, around uh, September, September, I guess. Um, my, my wife knew, she worked with a guy who knew the editor at the City Magazine, a little town we were living in. So he said, here's this guy's email, you know, um, or his phone number, you know, call him and see if you can see if he'll meet with you. And so he said, yeah, bring a writing sample. I called the guy, I said, bring a writing sample. So I took this, <laughs> you know, I was fresh out of school. So I took some paper that I wrote in college and I gave it to him. And then we met and he was like, all right, you can write. So, and he assigned me this story. It was a tiny, tiny story. It was about, um, in the South, they have this stuff called kudzu, which is, it's a vine. It's it's super super thick and it grows very fast, like you know, an inch a day. And it, it'll if you ever go through the south, you'll see like this trees and buildings covered with this vine. And it's that's kudzu. It was a Japanese plant that was imported here. It's ornamental in Japan because they have a beetle that keeps it in check. But here we did not have that beetle, so like you know, it grows out, grows crazy. And somebody had figured out that goats were the way. They were the environmentally friendly way to keep this under control because goats eat to the root. So I wrote this story. I mean, like 400 words or something about kudzu. It was a tiny thing that I'm sure nobody who, even the most devoted dedicator, that reader did not read that story. But the morning it came out, I woke up and I was going to, they told me whatever day the magazine was going to hit newsstands. And um, I remember I woke up 
that morning and I rolled over to my wife and I said, I know what I want to do with the rest of my life. And that feeling of knowing that my words were going to be out in the public that day was, it was, it was incredible. It was the most incredible feeling that little 400 word story. That was all I needed. So that's how I got into it. Um, from there, I got a job at a newspaper and was doing that for a while and enjoying it, you know, but also there was that other part of me, you know, that was kind of like, man, there's got to be, you know, like I'm kind of young to just be an observer. And, you know, that's what you are as a reporter. Like they send you out, which is, you know, if you think about this, like what job am I describing here? Something crazy has happened. You get sent out. You have to make sense of what's going on, organize it, write out everything you found and what you did, and then hand that to somebody else, right? I mean, that's basically EMS and that's what reporting is. But, and, and the reporting said, you don't, you don't take any action. You just observe. And so fairly early on, I was like, I need, before it's all said and done, like I need to be involved in some kind of way. I need to do something. I need, I wasn't sure what that something was going to be. Um, but it, I, you know, I needed, I, I needed to do, you know, and, and when I was in college, I had seen this witnessed an accident and it was, uh, I used to, I had this job in the summer. So I would lead these boat and jet ski tours to the intercoastal waterway Two guys spraying each other on jet skis. Um, one crashes into the other. The jet ski flies up in the air and hits the dude in the face, rips off everything below his nose, like face gone. We're floating in 85 feet of water, you know, three miles from from help. And I'm 19, and here's this guy with half his face dripping into the water. I totally panicked. And that stuck with me, that idea of like, hey, if things ever go wrong, I am not the person to be there with you. And that you know, that nagging memory of how I'd panicked in a moment of truth stayed, stayed there. Um, and it got, it got amplified when I was working as a reporter and only observing and never doing anything. It was like, damn, can I do things? So that kind of, that's where, that's where it all began. Now, what about 9-11? Uh, you were in Sisdale, uh, a military college. Um, and in the book, you talk about being aware that some of your friends were now deployed and overseas. So what impact did that event have on you? And then lead me into you know, how you found your way of being able to serve within the U.S. itself. Huge. I mean, it's so hard to imagine now because we're so, you know, we're so torn apart. And then, you know, we, we lived these granular lives that we didn't used to, you know, used to, there was a time when everybody listened to the same radio station, watched the same television shows. And that's not the case anymore. You know, um, everybody's living their own little pocket, but there was this tremendous sense of, of belonging and, and of like collective uh, responsibility, you know, like, Hey, we're all in this together. And, and so that began to play in my mind. I mean, friends of mine, are off at war and they are, uh, you know, living out, you know, certainly to my 23 year old eyes, a grand adventure and certainly doing something bigger than, you know, writing newspaper stories, uh, for their, you know, city council. And, um, watching that, I just thought, damn, I need to like, this huge thing has happened. I want to be part of something. I'm not sure what it is. I want to, I want to be part of something. And then these guys I know are like off doing this huge thing. Like I, I need to figure out a way to, to, to do something more. I thought about the military, but it just, it's not what I was going to do. And, um, and then one day I got 
one evening I called out to uh, this tunnel collapse. So my editor pulls me aside. It's late in the day. I'm getting ready to go home. And he says, Hey man, um, this, there were these guys who just got hurt in a tunnel collapse. I need you to go. So Northwest Atlanta, they're doing this massive um, wastewater project. There's this huge, I don't know, it's, it's a giant tunnel. I mean, it's hundreds of feet wide, hundreds of feet deep. And there's this group of guys that are down there on scaffolding, scaffolding collapse, and they just disappear into the earth. So I go out to cover the rescue, which immediately becomes apparent that it's nothing more than, you know, body recovery. When you when you see the scale of this thing, you, you realize like, oh, wow, these guys aren't coming back. So the fire department comes out and it's their high angle technical rescue team. And they go down and they pull the bodies out. And so, you know, there I am standing, you know, sun setting behind me and, you know, this sort of forgotten stretch of, of the city watching these bodies come up out of this hole in the ground. And there's something about the way these guys carry themselves that I knew in that moment, like, right, there's, you know, I'm looking for something and I'm not certain what it is, but these guys have found it. And I can tell by the way that they behave, that they've found it. Um, maybe this is, maybe this is my thing. So I went to paramedic or I went to EMT school. Now, did you ever think about the fire side as well? Or was it, you know, purely EMS that you were driven with, you know, right from the beginning? Initially I did think fire. And then in EMT school, um, we, I, I third rode with Grady and, you know, in Atlanta, if you're on a nine one one ambulance, it's, it's not city, it's not fire-based, it's hospital-based. It's not third-party, thank God. It's not, you know, AMR. Um, it's um, it's it's hospital-based. And, you know, they run only the heart of the city of Atlanta. And, you know, they're well-known for, for being really competent, really good service, really tested. They ran a ton of calls. Their ambulances were beat to hell. And they should, you know, and their uniforms are sort of like worn out and half untucked and, just the way they carried themselves, they were like pirates, you know? And I just immediately was like, oh, this is where I, like the fire services, most of them I saw were very buttoned up and I'm not a buttoned up personality. And along comes this Grady ambulance, which again is like, you know, on its last, it's 200,000 miles past its prime and the guys jumping out of it, you know, or the people, cause it was, you know, Tons of women too are, you know, tattooed and just, you know, have this like very um, hard bitten, very tested, very world weary, you know, aspect to them. And I was like, damn, that's, that's it. Like it was, there was no, there was no other thought after that of, of going anywhere else. So walk me through your training and then, you know, your, your first kind of year of calls. Mm-hmm. My ENT school was Intense. Um, I'm infinitely thankful to my instructor, a guy by the name of Tom Lyles. Um, I it it that got me ready in so many ways. Like he was dead serious. He, you know, he he knew what we were. He knew we were EMTs and that we were going to be with a paramedic who was going to you know be the one doing the heavy lifting. But he was insistent that we be. Um, equal partners and at least understanding, you know, not equal partners in action, but equal partners in knowing what's going on. He he had been a Grady medic back in the late seventies and early eighties. 
And, you know, that was, you know, in the eighties, Atlanta was a murder capital and it was this crazy place. And EMS was still very much the wild west. So he, you know, he had a very specific view of what the job was. And to him, the job was like, you know, <laughs> a stethoscope, a wristwatch and your wits, you know, that's all you got. And you go out there and, and, and really ultimately that's what it is, right? It, so few of the calls required you to go all the way through the algorithm and really dig into your drug box. So much of it is like, you know, can you think on your feet? Um, can you stand pressure? You know, can you, can you keep yourself from panicking when everything's falling apart around you? And part of that is knowing what's going on. And so that EMT class was, it was as, it was very, you know, it was great. Like I walked out of that having a very good idea of, of what was going on. And I loved it. You know, it was, it was this voyage of discovery, you know, in a way that paramedic school simply can't be, you know, it was the first time that you've been exposed to this world. So one day you're just this person who, you know, maybe sells software or maybe works for a newspaper. And the next you're learning how to stop a hemorrhage or deliver a baby. Um, It was so cool. And then to learn like how the body works and what's going on, it was kind of terrifying. You know, you learn it like, Oh, Hey, there's this thing called, you know, there's, there's the vena cava and it's really uh, fragile and it's right there in the middle of your stomach. And if anything happens, like, that's it, you're going to drain out before anybody can stop you. So it's terrifying, but also incredible to know what's going on. And I, I, I fell in love with it uh, right away and went through, did my rides, um, got out and hit the road immediately thought like, oh man, I'm going to get, I'm going to get job after job. This is going to be great. I'm going to go work at Grady. And Grady was like, dude, you need some experience. Go away. So I didn't get hired at Grady. I got hired at a, a third party transport service my first couple of months. Um, it was just so incredibly shady. So ostensibly they take people to and from appointments. That's the idea. Like, oh, you're like Dallas. This is really their, you know, meat and potatoes. And cause you know, they're, Three times a week, you got to pick them up and take them. And Medicare pays for it, especially if you sit them down, which they tell you like, hey, lay this guy down. Don't let him sit on the bench because we get paid better if he gets laid down. But nursing homes will call them because if I call 911, it's it suggests an emergency. If I call a non-emergency service, I mean, it like implicitly in the name says it's non-emergency. So it sounds better when I talk to the family. I don't have to say like, hey, nobody since last shift has looked in on your dad. We did not notice that he had a raging GI bleed for the last 11 hours. You know, you could just pretend that that was not the case. So they would call us and be two EMTs working for this, like, you know, really shady, you know, vaguely uh, Medicare fraudy kind of um, uh, EMS service. And they would, that like, they would call us for emergencies. And so people were having strokes and people were choking and GI bleeds and all kinds of crazy stuff. And I remember thinking like, man, there's no way we're supposed to be doing this. Like, this is totally not this place. It was a terrifying couple of months. Um, I learned a lot because we were thrown into it and everybody I was with was an EMT, but um, it was, it was very shady. And then uh, a few months in, I finally, you know, got myself hired uh, to do 911. Now, I think one of the least uh, understood elements of what we do is you truly get to see behind the curtain of society, which is why I think it's so important, you know, your book and other books in our field that are written. Not only is it something great to read when you're in that profession, but it kind of storytells to the general public. This is actually what society looks like. 
What were yeah. some of the kind of real aha moments now you're wearing the uniform as you start being exposed to to what society's, you know, society's raw edges that most people don't see? I mean, first off, there are neighborhoods that you just don't go to, um, you know, as a normal person. You know, there are every city, every town has um, really run down, dangerous, desperate parts of, you know, parts of it that, uh, and so, so going into all of those, you know, on the far edges of town, there were, you know, people who, who lived, you know, kind of in the woods and, you know, they were their own crazy. And then in town further, you had the housing projects, um, which was the, you know, they had an intensity all their own. So that was really intriguing to see the other side of that. Um, you know, to see the other side of society, you don't know. The other thing is, you realize that like the the world is full of people of all walks of life um, that are constantly doing something they shouldn't do, you know. And no matter the home, like there are just like really nice houses where you walk through the door and you're like, whoa, like not a stick of furniture, um, walls all banged up. You know, the person looks like they're on their last leg and, you know, maybe it's addiction, maybe it's mental illness. Um, you see a lot of that. And in, you know, in all kinds of neighborhoods, people who, you know, had jobs and were married and had families and it all slipped through their fingers through one thing or another. Um, the violence that is happens. That's the other thing. It's like, I, I feel differently now. Like I, I'm sitting in my house and looking around, I, like I know if you go an eighth of a mile in all directions around me, you're going to find a home in which there's violence happening. You know, you see a lot of that, um, you know, people who are living, you wouldn't know it walking on the street, but who are like really vicious people um, or their family members, you know, who are in their house, who are, who are really living a horrible existence that's happening everywhere. So you, you know, some of it is like, you drive past the house and you're like, I know what that place smells like. You know, <laughs> you can, you can, you know, you get like, I've been there a thousand times. Um, and then some of it is like, Hey man, behind, behind that door, you have no clue what's going on. You know, and there's that, what's that phrase? Um, everybody you meet is going through something that you can't possibly imagine. Be kind. Like you see that, like it, it, that, that, um, that axiom gets, gets trotted out in, in very visceral form in the job. So you have a photo gallery on the website. And one thing I noticed, I mean, we're sitting here video talking at the moment and you you seem to be in great shape. One of the big things that I talk about on the show is the physical and mental health um, cost of what we do, especially the shift work. It's It would appear that, you know, later in your career, you were a lot heavier than that kind of six foot two beanpole that you were when you were young. So what did you see within yourself as far as the effect of the job on your own physical health? Yeah, it's funny. If you look at my last ID batch, I have it. And you look at it, I'm always blown away. So I'm 10 years younger in that photo. I look older in that picture than I do now. I'm certainly easily 10, 15 pounds heavier in that picture. At some point, you know, it it begins, <clears throat> there's something about um, the stresses of the job that that can begin to weigh on you. And I think the world has changed, but when I was doing it, you didn't talk about anything. I remember very early on, I had this crazy call, this 
very premature baby. I forget exactly how many weeks, but if let's say he was 21 or 22, it was wherever, like wherever signs had finally set the bar. So if they'd set it at 21 weeks, this kid was 21 weeks. So that was according to science, like the bare minimum of what could be saved. He's delivered. Um, he's delivered as we're putting the mother in, in the, the ambulance. She was having cramps. Like it felt very normal pregnancy, 21 weeks. She's having an issue. Hey, sure. You know, hop on her stretcher. Let's go. We're loading the stretcher into the ambulance and she just makes a noise. And next thing you know, like she's delivering this baby. Um, that kid, of course, was in full cardiac arrest when we delivered him. And when we got to the hospital, he, he was breathing and had a pulse rate. Um, when that was over with, somebody said to me, you know, and I think he was trying to help, but he said, you know, nobody gives a shit. You ran that call. Don't talk about it. Don't brag about it. Don't think about it. Just show up and run your next call and run tomorrow's call. And I think what he was trying to say is like, you know, don't talk yourself up, but what gets conveyed in that is when something goes wrong, don't talk about that either, right? That's the that's the subtext in there is if, it, if something goes well, you know, have the decency um, to not brag about it. But when something goes poorly, have the courage to swallow it and just carry that. And I think that to me, that was my big lesson from that. It was like, yeah, okay, don't brag, you know, act like you've been there before, but much more importantly, um, just carry it keep it all to yourself. And, you know, I had a lot of moments where things went wrong and you realize when you get out of this job that like all the good things will no longer be there, right? The friendships and the crazy nights and, you know, the, that feeling of being on an ambulance in the perfect weather with your favorite partner and running crazy calls and just hearing the radio chatter and knowing that like, man, I can, I've been here long enough. I can do anything that comes my way and I'm going to get called to do some crazy stuff and I'll be ready for it all that's gone. But what they don't tell you that is the thing that remains, you know, when you've lost all the positives, the bad memories are still there. And, you know, what, what will keep you awake at night or what will go through your mind before you fall asleep is not like, oh, those cool moments. It'd be that person who's dead right now because you weren't good on the day you should have been. We all have that moment, you know, where you just think it might not be your fault per se, but like, had you done, had you performed as well as you could have, that person maybe is not dead. And you, you know, you, you remember those moments and, you know, so when those things happen and they certainly do, you know, I just swallowed it all and I was just quiet about it. And I realized that like your friends can't comprehend it. People you work with don't necessarily want to talk about it. It freaks your family out. So best not to, to tell them about it. So you just carry it and it, it begins to weigh on you. And for me, it just began to weigh negatively. I was working nights, which is a, a really weird existence. Is anyone who's ever done that could, you know, knows you're up at weird hours, you're asleep when you shouldn't be. It's really, I could never really sleep during the day. I'm a morning person. So I get like two hours of sleep while I was on shift. And so I just was walking dead anyway. And all of those things, they just, they pile up, you know, especially when you're at a service where you're running 10 calls a shift or more. Um, it just, it, you know, in, in a 12 hour period, it just, it wears you out. And it was evident by the end, like, I was worn out. One of the things that I struggle with, and you talk about you know, that code save that you have with the, the preemie, um, I was firefighter EMT and then paramedic later in my career, 14 years. I never, ever had a single save from a cardiac arrest. I was just the, the guy that got you know the, the bleeds and the triple A's and the GI, you know, all, all the horrible shit that you don't come back from. So I was that black cloud. And so 
even though it wasn't ever something that that was crippling for me, it definitely was a load. And I look back and think about the way that we're trained. You know, you do your mega codes and all these things. Okay, you do this, this, this. You push these drugs. You defibrillate at this, you know, number of joules. And then, oh, you, you save the patient. Good job. There's no discussion on, hey, there's a 9 out of 10 chance that they're not going to come back. And so the expectation of making these saves and doing the right things, like codes that went really well, but they just were not, you know, they were so broken physically that they were not going to come back from that. That was something that I struggled with because I saw people with these code saves and getting the certificates and, you know, people visiting them at the station. I never had that. They always fucking died. <laughs> so I always told people that yeah. if you had a cardiac arrest and, you know, this was my face, it was the last thing you saw. I hate to tell you, but it's probably not going to be good for you. So talk to me about that. I mean, you said you had this great training. You know, did you experience any of, of that, the inability to save and the, the guilt and shame that goes with it? <laughs> If you were dead when I walked through the door and you were dead when I dropped you off, it, it didn't bother me. You know, um, that always just felt like practice. I was practicing a tube. I was practicing the logistics of getting a large body out of a house. I was practicing telling four firefighters who didn't have any reason to believe that I was capable of leading this call. Um, I was practicing telling them what to do and, and getting them to follow me and, and, and listen to me. So that's usually how I looked at it arrests. But yeah, the other calls, you know, um, the asthma patient who, you know, I remember there was one woman, we like 1030 at night and I walked through the door. The last thing she said was, don't let me die. Well, I mean, you know, she died in a hurry. Those really, really, man, man, those, those stick with you. And you know, it's not your fault, but you know, there are those calls. Maybe, you know, maybe that particular woman, everything goes you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, whatever, how many steps you take, they all go perfectly. And so when it's over with you, like, man, eh, just her time. But so often in the chaos of that moment, things don't go. That's the moment when like the regulator falls off your oxygen, you know, and suddenly you have this tank that's no good, or you have this new partner who doesn't know where to go and you have to keep poking your head through the window. And in, in response to that, you don't notice that, you know, the albuterol is out or you don't, you, you, you forgot to, to do some, you know, you forgot to give some medicine. Um, that's the one where the fire department for whatever reason doesn't show up, or there's an extra set of stairs that you can't navigate. And, and in the process of doing that, your CHF patient went from like, Hey, I'm really not doing well to like, Hey, I'm dead. That the chaos that comes with someone who is on the doorsteps, we used to jokingly refer to it as fitna. There's a Southern, Southern term fitting, um, which is means fixing, which is, I guess is a way to say I'm about to, and uh, so you'd see somebody, you know, like if you were called in um, second and you'd say, how's this patient? They'd say, man, he's fitting. And so you knew like, oh, this guy's, you know, this guy's, he's, he's looking for a reason to die. And in those chaotic moments, you, you often provide them with that reason. And I think that's the frustrating, like, that's the thing that you carry with you. It's like, they were looking for a reason not to make it. And I provided it. Um, that is the hard, you know, that, that is difficult. And, you know, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't tell him not to take his meds. I didn't tell him to get to be 508 pounds. I didn't tell him to walk to the second floor. Um, you know, like that certainly was not advisable. I didn't do any of those things, but nonetheless, you know, I volunteered to be the guy who comes to help and it's impossible to be perfect all the time, but that doesn't mean that you don't carry that with you. And I think some of the, you know, some of the things that really 
add to the anxiety are the ones that do go well. I mean, how often do you work a very bad pediatric call, right? Like some kid who's, you know, a a nine-month-old with status seizures or a three-year-old with very bad asthma that's moving zero wear and the parents are panicking and everything's like, everybody's freaking out. Your partner's pinging because she's not used to kids or maybe she has kids and she's told you like, Hey, if we get a sick kid, I'm going to be useless, which happens. You know, people used to say that to me all the time. Um, and everything goes perfectly and you deliver this child who's significantly better than when you arrive. But in your mind, you're like, dude, there were 20 things that could have gone wrong. And that kid could have died in front of his parents like that would always it would just linger, you know, it just sticks around. It's just, it's an anxiety. It's a low grade anxiety that's out there that like, whew, there's a lot of ways this could go sideways. I used to even get anxiety with just getting to the call. Like you said, I mean, my, my very first position in Hialeah, Florida, I would never lived in that town before. It was you know, nowhere near where I grew up. I mean, I'm from another country in itself. I'd never driven uh, ambulance, license sirens or a rescue in that case. Um, and they were talking about a super urban part of, you know, South Florida. And I used to just be crippled with anxiety because I would be the one that they were shouting at saying, you're going the wrong way. And that stayed through my whole career, because if we can't get to that fire, to that extrication, to that, you know, as you said, the asthmatic patient, then everything else is, is irrelevant. You didn't even make it there. So whether you were given the wrong directions or the MDT isn't working properly or so that was something that would get me. I wouldn't even get to the call. Like, are we even going to get there in the first place? Or are we going to have a train come across right in front of us? Or, you know, so that I don't think people understand all those layers of stress before you even got to the patient, when you're with the patient, offloading. Is it some narcissistic egomaniac of an ER physician that's not fucking listening to what you're trying to tell them? I mean, we we carry an entire silo full of stress for every single call. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think of all the apartments, you know, gate codes, buildings, poorly, especially working at night, poorly marked buildings. Again, gate codes. God, gate codes. Fire the fire department had a key for you know every gate code in their in their first respond. We didn't have any of that. You know, I always be like, God, I I hope the I hope fire gets here because I'm sitting at the gate and I hope this is not really a choking because this guy's going to die. You know, or subway stations are they north? Are they south? Which end of the platform are they on? What floor are they on? Um, all those things add a tremendous amount of stress and you get there and, you know, then the people are screaming at you, you know, because it took you 15 minutes to arrive and, um, you know, it turns out to be a different call than you expected. You know, they all said, oh, it's, it's seizures. And then you get there and it's not seizures. It's it's the opposite. And and again, it's like, it's to be expected, but that's one of the challenges. Like it's, you know, the, the fact that if I could, if, and, you know, Nurses are fantastic. ER doctors are fantastic. I, 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 you know, I'm always in awe of an ER doctor. Like all their, so much how how much they know and how calm they're able to stay. But when they get a call from us, like they have a pretty good idea of what's going on, and usually, unless all hell's broken loose, a, a fair amount of stuff has been done. Um, at bare minimum, like some like <laughs> name, birthday, address. Um, you know, allergies, that is not a minor thing. That's always provided. And you, you know, when we walk through the door, you have, you know, you get called for one thing and it turns out to be something else, which in your mind, you're prepared for, oh, he's, he slipped and fell and you get there and a the guy's seizing like crazy. Oh, he didn't slip and fall. He's having, you know, like, like that is that sudden shift in, in mindset or realizing like, oh, wait a minute, this is, 
it, it isn't a seizure. Like he's, he's pale and he's sweating and he has no radial pulse. And so his blood pressure is probably nothing like, Oh, this is something totally different than what they thought it was. Uh, you know, it all, it all just builds up. It all, it's part of what, you know, it's, it's part of the reason we're so proud of what we do is because of how you know hard it is to do it well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I, I remember in the book, he talks about ultimately we were seeking almost that chaos, you know, and I, and I agree with that completely. I think the ability to be there on someone's worst day is is so powerful but i can see myself in my mind driving with my partner up um obt orange blossom trail which is the real red light district and just having this aha moment that you know there were there were women of the night waving to us there were you know drug drug dealers and gangbangers waving to us and like this was pd they'd be scurrying like you know cockroaches mm -hmm. and i'm not saying they were like cockroaches but as an analogy but it's so unique to be almost one of the only professions on planet earth that it doesn't really matter who you are 99% of the population are glad that you're there because whether you're you know about to murder someone or about to be murdered you're still going to be glad that the paramedics show up so it's a very unique perspective that, that we hold yeah I, I i you you realize um early on that you're being kept alive by goodwill you know like situations devolve you know, every couple times a year, if you're on an ambulance, things are going to get out of hand for no good reason, you know, just a, a, the wrong um, set of ingredients and suddenly it creates a storm. And so when it doesn't happen, you realize like, man, the only thing, the only reason is that, because I don't have any authority here. They just believe that I'm here for the right reasons and they trust me. And, you know, you walk through houses and you can tell, you know, a lot of people are all bluster. Some people are dangerous, you know, like, and you get to you you can tell the difference mainly because you hear you see the opposite so often. So many guys who are live in bad neighborhoods want you to believe they're tough, and then you see the guy who is tough, and you you know by process of elimination you're like oh that that's the real thing. Like that's that's the lie in the midst all the all the hyenas. And when you walk into a house and you feel that energy, and you're there for their uncle. And it's these guys who you know are like hard dudes and they're just sort of moving furniture for you and making sure that you have space. And, you know, it's kind of like, oh, wow, you're like, you know, <laughs> under any other circumstances, I wouldn't like to be here. But yet, you know, your concern is that I can do what I'm here to do because, you know, what I'm here to do is help this person you care for. It's a, it's a, it's a very unique experience. Absolutely. Well, you know, you have this near decade experience in EMS. What was it that ultimately led you to transition out of that world? Toward the end, I had torn my ACL skiing. So I had some time off. And that was the first like, oh, I kind of, I kind of, I kind of don't miss it. Um, I'm kind of, I think, I think I've done this. So then when I got back into it, that confirmed it. Like, okay, I'm, I'm in my mid thirties now. Um, it's less fun than it was. A lot of the people that I started with are not here. And, and again, like comes back to like so many of the reasons you're there are the sense of belonging. And there was, you know, kind of a new generation of people. There were a new crop of 23 year olds. And I was this, you know, 34 year old, old guy who came from a different regime and, you know, who, who the, the world, you know, like I still used a map book and they were, 
you know, they were now, you know, GPSing everything. And, um, and, uh, you know, it's like, okay, so the people that I came in with were gone. It's no longer so exciting because I've done it a bunch and I, I, you know, I get it. And I, you know, I don't know. I think maybe I've, this has run its course. I don't think I realized at the time, or I, I 100% did not realize like that. Those are the things that are going through my mind. I've got kids. Um, I'm getting older. How long can I do this for? Because, you know, on an ambulance, there's no retirement program. There's no getting promoted to sergeant, to lieutenant, to captain. There's no battalion chief. There's just a supervisor, which I never wanted to be because you're no longer on the street. You know, you're it's, it's a completely different job. So those are the reasons I got out. It wasn't until I was gone and could look at it from the vantage point of hindsight, which honestly came from writing the book um, and realized like, oh, I was really, I was really burned out. And I really needed to get away and kind of catch my breath. The transition out is another area I think a lot of people struggle. You know, you you were looking for that purpose. You found it within the world of EMS. And the danger is you almost lose that kindness and compassion element that sent you to serve. And you, you kind of see yourself as this kind of two-dimensional, quote-unquote, hero, the paramedic, the police officer, etc., and then some people, when they transition out, that was their identity. They've lost their purpose, their community, their tribe. Um, so, you know, then they find themselves on the other side, you know, maybe still with their family, maybe alone in an apartment by that point. And it can be very jarring for some people. What was your transition like for yourself? You know, it's funny. It took me a second to realize that um, the second part you're referring to about, you know, the jarring, like, oh, it's because when I got out, I immediately shifted into writing full time. And by sort of happy circumstance, we moved to Los Angeles around the time. So I started doing some television writing and I was, you know, I was working on the book. And so everywhere I went, I was like, oh, this is, this is hazard. This is, he was a paramedic and, you know, people, people would ask you questions. And I, 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 I was the person who had this experience. And so I still felt, you know, people, when you do the job, people look at you a certain way. There's a, there's a conferred competency that you have, you know, people um, believe like, oh, this, you know, this is a this is a person we can count on and and we can turn to. And so, switching over and writing, that continued because you know I was I was still that guy. And then, and when was it? The summer of twenty twenty, I started working with. And bear in mind, all the time I'm writing and doing stuff, and so I'm kind of, I'm like, I'm part of that world by proxy and part of EMS by proxy and the book had come out and I was speaking at conference, you know, like just, I was summer of 2020. I, I began working with this, um, international medical relief organization. And instantly I realized like, Oh man, I've got, I've got distance from the field. I was talking to people who were doing it every day. And some of the things that, that we had done when I was in it were no longer part of the, you know, medicine as it does, it was ever, is ever changing. And so some of what I did just no longer done. And I began to feel that distance. And for the first time, then suddenly it was like, Oh, I'm no longer that guy. Um, you know, that competence that is conferred upon or was conferred upon me is now gone. You know, I'm, I'm no longer that person. And that was a weird, like, Oh man, it's, you know, like, who am I if I'm not the person that, you know, if I'm not Hazard, the Grady medic, then like, what, what exactly am I going to be? Um, it is tricky. Uh, and that, that was, you know, very much um, 
you know, kind of a, like a wake up, like, oh man, this so much of my identity had been wrapped up in this and now that's just gone. And, you know, it's, it's very difficult to figure out how to, you know, how to transition, reposition yourself, how to, how to view yourself in a new light. Did you ever, ever advise on any of the Hollywood films from the EMS point of view? Yeah, well, I worked on a couple, a couple of TV shows um, as a writer, but because I had this medical background, you know, I was writing, but then also somebody would be like, Hey, is this like, does this make sense? Or hey, give me an idea. I need, um, I need a reason for this to have happened. Um, and you know, I'd be like, Oh yeah, sure. Let's, let's do this. Um, so in that regard, yeah. But there are people who have made whole careers out of that. You know, I, I never wanted to, um, you know, I never wanted to step on their toes. So I, I've always, you know, been involved as a, as a writer, I've tried, you know, not to, you know, not to endanger somebody else's livelihood. Have you seen the film Ambulance? No, <laughs> I've heard it's, um, I've heard it's bad. I don't know, whoever, whichever advisor they have must have passed away right before they started shooting. And so like I said, because <laughs> I've uh, heard that. Oh my God. As a paramedic, it was absolutely awful. I mean, it's, it's a, it's an action film, but it's, you know, it must be so hard for police to watch so many policemen too, but I mean, she's doing compressions while the guy still has his, you know, his uh, flak vest on. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely awful. But I, I just, I'm assuming they probably just cut the budget. And like, we don't need an advisor on this. We'll figure it out from, you know, the Golden Girls and some other things that we watched. But yeah, <laughs> was... fire the guy who's making, you know, $40 a day on a, you know, on a $300 million project. Yeah, he probably just finished doing the Resusciani series for uh, the, the American Heart Association prior to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, then you talked about writing. So your your first book, Post EMS, was A Thousand Naked Strangers. So talk to me about how you found yourself back into that that world again. And then was there any catharsis? When I, when I wrote mine, some of these doors kind of opened in my mind. I was like, oh, shit, I forgot about that. What was that experience like kind of revisiting some of these calls, but doing it in the written word? It was great. Um, <clears throat> I never wanted to do it. It was not my intention. Um but at some point in my career, I started writing a blog because I just got tired of telling the same story. You know, everywhere you go, people are like, oh, hey, tell them that story. Tell them about that guy. So I just started writing them down because um, I, I noticed that the details were fading. Like I would tell somebody's story, you know, they would, like I'd be prompted to tell a story and the person who prompted me had heard me tell it two years before and they remembered a detail I had forgotten. So I was like, oh man, this stuff is slipping. So I started writing the blog and Somebody um, forwarded me an email one day. It was like, hey, man, I haven't talked to you in a while, but this feels like your sense of humor. And it was one of my own blog posts that had been like, had traveled around the world and it made it back to me. And I was like, okay, so there's a market for this. And so I, I just sat down and I started writing my experience, you know, like I, I wanted it to be, um, I wanted it to be the kitchen confidential, uh, you know, for an, for an ambulance, you know, like that you know, what made Anthony Bourdain's book so great was that you just felt like you were in a kitchen, you know, like he told, he, it was very unvarnished. Like this is reality. Um, if only cooks read this and fine, but if you want to read it, then it'll be interesting to you. And so I was like, all right, I want to write something that'll feel true to people who are on an ambulance, but, but tell the story for everybody. And that, you know, that required it being funny in places that required it being serious in places. Um, I needed to talk about how it is scary at times and all the doubt that creeps in and the boredom. Um, 
and the frustration and all the things and just the wonderfulness, like the fact that, you know, yeah, there are two people out there who are rooting for you to, uh, you know, uh, be the victim of some great calamity because they want to put all this training to use. So I wanted to you know, tell that version of the story and it was, uh, you know, a very cathartic experience. One, it brings back stuff that you had forgotten. I was having trouble recreating it in the beginning. So I started listening to music from various stages of my career. Um, and I was shocked at how quickly those songs, like immediately brought back, you know, details, times, places, people. It was, it was really, it was really incredible. Um, I would, anyone who's trying to remember various points of their life, I would say like, figure out what you were listening to in that moment and then listen to it now by yourself with headphones. Um, so, you know, it, and that, it did that, but it also gave me a fresh perspective. Again, you know, when I, when I left, I don't think I realized all the reasons that I left and I certainly didn't realize how I felt at the time. So it was good to process all of it and to talk to my wife and be like, so what did you think about all these things? And what were, what were some of the moments that, you know, you did or didn't like about, you know, being married to someone doing this job. And, you know, it was, I don't know, it was, a, it was, a, it was a rewarding experience for me for sure. Now, one of the things that really jumped out at me with, with uh, Thousand Naked Strangers was actually the writing itself. There's lots and lots of us that have done, you know, biographies and books um, but, you know, but we're firefighters, we're paramedics, we're police officers, so that's not normally, you know, our skill set. I mean, I've kind of evolved mine and, and listened to a lot of mentors and read book on write, excuse me, read books on writing to try and improve mine. But yours, you know, your description, your style of writing is probably one of the best that I've read of any book in our kind of, you know, collected professions. So how did you oh, continue you. to improve your writing as you progress through your career as a paramedic? I was writing the whole time. Um, you know, I, I wrote a handful of books while I was there. I was trying to, um, you know, I think a more, um, a so more self-aware person would have just gone to an MFA program, but, um, I just kept writing books to figure out what my voice was. And at some point I wrote one that I thought, okay, the story is shit, but this is the voice that I, this is, this is me, this is who I am as a writer. And it was sort of, you know, it was somewhat sardonic. Um, it was comic. It was a little bit dark. Um, but it, it just felt like, it felt like me talking. I think that's really the, like, what is the voice in my head and and how does it sound? Um, and then also, you know, I mean, Stephen King will say, if you want to be a writer, you've got to write a lot and you've got to read a lot. I read constantly and I tried to figure out like where in a book, do I get bored? Um, where in a book do I get excited? What, what type of sentence turns me on? What type of sentence turns me off? What kind of description do I think is stupid? Um, and, you know, I found there was a book that was, I can't remember what it was called now. People were raving about it. It came out in the early 2000s. People were raving about it. And I got like six pages in and there was a scene in which the main character's brother is hit by a car and he dies. And just the description, it was so terrible. And I thought like, no. Eh, no, no. Okay. So there's a way to do this to convey immediacy. And this right here is not it. And so I, you know, that's kind of, that's a lot of it was figuring out like, where do I get bored? But then also where do I tune in? And, you know, your taste in reading will be your taste in writing. Like it's, it is speaking to some part of your brain um, and that clicks the right way. And uh, you know, that was a huge part of it. Plus, you know, I, I'm uh I'm like a 
I don't know, kind of a contrarian by nature. So I don't do anything in a normal way. I do everything in whatever I think is like my way. And it, that I think that really helps because I didn't feel compelled to, you know, I like to do, um, what am I trying to say? Like, I, 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 no, I don't, you know, rules, grammatical rules don't bother me, you know, just don't misspell a word unless it's intentionally being misspelled. But other than that, just like, you you ever listen, you ever read a transcript of a conversation, thing goes all over the place. When you hear it, it makes perfect sense. But when you read it, it's going all over the place. How we speak to each other is, you know, it's very informal and it goes up and down and there are no rules to conversations, you know, I mean, I can insult you right now and you, you you can punch me if you want, you know, like we can do whatever we want. This, this conversation can go however we want it to go. Um, and that's how writing should be, you know? And that's kind of, to me, that was, that was a big thing. It's like, Oh, like, again, like getting back to the, the chaos and wanting to break rules. Like that when you, when you're writing, you're inventing a universe. So you can break as many rules as you want. You can disregard as many rules. You can not know rules like fuck them. It's your book. You know, you write it exactly the way you want to. And if you do that, whoever reads it bare minimum, they'd be like, yeah, this is, this is the way this person thinks. This was their mind. This wasn't their approximation of what a book should look like. Like this is, this is their mind being opened up to you. Um, And I think to me, that was, you know, that was the important thing. Beautiful. Yeah. That's good to hear. That's kind of how I approached when I wrote and also with the podcast, there was, you know, lots of things like this is how you do a podcast, A, B, C, D, E. And I, took from things that I love. I love Joe Rogan's conversational style. I love Tim Ferriss's very you know, direct, you know, sterile, I mean, surgical, not sterile, questioning, you know, he's very well prepared, knows the guest inside and out, and just picking all these pieces and then just kind of, you know, freestyling my own version. And the same with the, yeah. with the book, of course, like you said, making it, you know, grammatically correct and sending it out and people say, okay, this needs to be more. You're kind of, you know, skimming the surface and definitely being humble enough to get their feedback but not trying mm-hmm. to follow a certain style, which is why, again, I've I've read books like um, Stephen King's On Writing as a, as a yeah, guide a to book. kind of like allow it to absorb my hair, but I'm not following any blueprint. And the second one I'm writing mm-hmm. is going to be a fiction. So again, I'm completely, you know, out of my comfort zone yet again. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun, terrifying and fun at the same time. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you there 100%. So the second book that you just um, released is uh, American Sirens. So this is a story, again, I was completely unaware of. So talk to me about Freedom House and this incredible story that you've unpacked in this book. I had never heard of this. I think, you know, too many people had never heard of this. Very short version of the story is that, you know, in, in 1967, the first the word didn't exist, excuse me, the word didn't exist, but we, we would call a paramedic class. Um, the world's first paramedic class is is held in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it, the students are, you know, a couple dozen black guys from a neighborhood called the Hill District, which, you know, is akin to Harlem or Watts. And, you know, they, they begin work in 68, um, essentially, you know, before anybody else is, is doing this. And, you know, EMS is a bit like the internet. It, it it was in the ether. And so this, you know, this idea of like an organized, well-trained, well-equipped group of people going out to provide pre-hospital care, like that, that idea was, was bubbling, but they were the first ones to, to pull it off. And, um, 
you know, it had been swept underneath the rug. And everyone who's involved in this story, from the doctor who created it, who had an absolutely incredible story, um, to the the doctor who helped them, you know, upgrade their skills, she had an incredible story. To all the the guys who were involved, they all had these, you know, they they lived. Each of their stories is worthy of a Russian novel, and and yet collectively they did this amazing. I mean, it forever changed the way lives are saved throughout the world. And it was totally unknown. You know, this they had existed for eight years and then it went away and it was as if it had never been. And yet, you know, the NREMT is created out of that organization and, you know, emergency care in the streets, which is the manual that people trained on for decades is created out of that organization. And they, they notched a number of firsts and, you know, their, their style, their model of education, um, their model of of like how they were equipped, um, what their ambulances looked like, that affected services all around the country because the guy who created them was the father of CPR. He was a well-known person. He drew attention. Doctors from around the country were popping their heads into Pittsburgh to see what was happening and borrowing what they saw and bringing it home to them. So this is, you know, an incredibly, not only successful, but you know, a seminal organization in the creation of EMS and its history had been completely forgotten. So what was the origin story of that? Was there something happening in Pittsburgh at that time that spurred this? No, um, no, not at all. Uh, somebody who read my first book, um, are you talking about like in 65 or now? Yeah, just, I mean, uh, like how did know, I come what, what created that, that momentum mm. to get all those incredible humans together to initiate this project in the first place. So Peter Saffer, this Austrian born anesthesiologist who again invented CPR, like his story is so crazy. Um, you know, barely escapes the, um, world war two, you know, like it has like, it, it, it's really, it, it's an, it's an incredible story. It would take hours to, to unpack it all, but he comes to the U.S. He gets to uh, eventually makes it to Baltimore as an anesthesiologist, which is a brand new specialty at that time. And he undertakes this series of of totally, um, I mean, almost reckless studies. He, uh, but of course not. But um, you know, he he, he encouraged a group of volunteers to be sedated and paralyzed for a period of eight hours over the course of forty different studies, and he tested on them while they were being um, both recorded and uh, mechanically monitored the effects of of the old version of rescue breathing, which was like a mechanical pressing of the back and flapping of the arms um, versus also rescue breathing, which was nobody was doing at that time. He had come across a study that said that expired air contained enough oxygen to keep us alive, but nobody did anything with that study. Rescue breathing did not exist. And so Saffer sees this and he goes, well, this, we could keep doing this stupid like turkey thing where we're, you know, working you over like it's Thanksgiving, or we can switch to rescue breaths and actually save lives. So he does this test again: how we convince people to be paralyzed and sedated for long periods of time while they worked. Not only like, hey, why why you're sedated and paralyzed? I'm going to use the method that I already know it doesn't work. So essentially, I'm going to sit here and record you dying, and then I'm going to bring in lay people who have zero training. Um, you know, secretaries, housewives, accountants, Boy Scouts. He had some kids as young as 11 coming in who'd give him a 30 second crash course on rescue breathing and then would would say, okay, go ahead. Don't let them die. 
and he would record the results. He gets these people to do it, which just shows you not only like that he was right and that people knew he was right, but his power of persuasion. I mean, I don't, you could not convince me to say yes to that study, especially at a time when nobody believes rescue breathing is a thing. He releases his results. Um, he pairs rescue breathing with CPR and boom, I mean, with chest compressions and boom, just like that CPR is born. He goes around the world proselytizing this idea. Everybody adopts it. I mean, it's an instantaneous thing. It is the moment people see the results and they see what they're like, it's right away, boom, rescue breathing is born. He, uh, while he's making his global transit to, to teach people about CPR, he's, um, he's hanging out one night in Norway and, uh, He's he's drinking Aquavit next to this toy maker by the name of Asmund Lairdahl. And he says, hey, you make dolls. I need someone to make a doll that I can train people on CPR on. And that, like in that, you know, half drunk conversation is how the Rosaciani doll is born. So that's who he is. He then moves to Pittsburgh. He is, he's helping to um, develop the world's first ICU. And so he, he begins work in Baltimore and, you know, there are several people who are involved in the creation of the ICU. He's one of them. And uh, University of Pittsburgh wants him to come and develop an ICU there. And while he's there, just because he's that sort of guy, he develops the paramedic curriculum. So he he sees that there is no, you know, in, in the mid-1960s, if you have a medical emergency, the people who show up at your house are going to be volunteer firefighters, the police, or undertakers and hearse. That's it. Those are your options. And none of them are going to be well-trained. None of them are going to be well-equipped, surely. And in all likelihood, they're going to do nothing for you. And they might just kill you. You know, you're, they would put you oftentimes in the back and then you would ride alone. Um, if something went wrong, you know, you, you die by yourself in the back of the ambulance. So there's zero care from the moment this thing starts until you get it to the hospital. Sapper, having invented CPR, knows he can train the public knows you can train lay people to provide advanced life support. And so he designs a course at a time when the word paramedic does not exist. He designs what we will come to recognize as a paramedic program. It's nine months long, um, very intense classroom portion. Then when they're done, they go to the ER, the OR, the ICU, OB, they go to the morgue, all the things that, that paramedics do today while they're in training. He's doing that at a time when most city, when every other city on planet earth has, you know, volunteer firefighters or police or undertakers. He's the first one to um, do this full spectrum training um, uh, on em medical emergencies. So that was how it gets to Pittsburgh. How it winds up being an all-Black organization is Saffer had a great idea, but he didn't have any people to carry it out. And there's an organization in, in the Hill District called Freedom House, which was started by a civil rights activist by the name of Jim McCoy, who created a nonprofit um, to provide job training opportunities for people in the Hill, which again, is a neighborhood very much like Harlem and had gone through all the troubles that other minority neighborhoods had. Um, in, in the fifties, a huge swath of it was torn down, um, as part of urban renewal, 8,000 people were displaced. There's, you know, their homes just gone, no plan for what to do with them. So, you know, what was left of that neighborhood had no jobs, had no opportunity. Crime rates are, are, are going up. Hope is going down, you know, so it's a, it's, it's a neighborhood that's really struggling. And Jim McCoy is trying to provide job training opportunities through this organization called Freedom House. Um, a couple of things have to happen, but essentially he meets Peter Saffer and through that marriage of 
hey, I, I want to take a bunch of lay people and train them to be medical professionals. And hey, I have a bunch of lay people and I'm trying to train them to be anything. You have not only the world's first paramedic class, but also the edict that it, that the world's first paramedics will be black. And that's how it's born. It's you know an immediate and unqualified success. They do a study um, within the first year and a half of critical patients, and they find that the volunteer fire department and the police both did the wrong thing 80% of the time with a critical patient. Um, Freedom House does the right thing 80% of the time with a critical patient. So, you know, it is a monstrous success and, you know, it is, it is endorsed everywhere that it goes, except for at home. You know, local politicians um, resisted it for, a, there were a lot of justifications for why they resisted it. But once you parse it all out, it's very difficult to um, come to any other conclusion that it wasn't what was happening in the back of the ambulances, but who was doing it. Um, the city just didn't seem to care for the fact that, you know, this was a group of black men who were doing this innovation. So they, they worked, the city worked against them. Um, they had really bad relations with the police as the cops had been providing EMS before then. So not only was this a group of people um, that already, you know, had, had a very contentious relationship with the police, but now they're stealing cops jobs, right? Every, every freedom house paramedic that puts on a uniform is one less cop that will have a job. So they fight with the police. They have issue. They have issues with uh, their patients. You know, time and again, white patients resist um, having black men touch them, even you know, at the risk of of possibly dying from a lack of care. They would they would you know push back on. Are you sure you have to do that? Do you really need to do this? So you know they're they're beset on all sides by challenges that no organization should have to face, and yet they show up every day for the span of eight years and provide a critical service to the city and, you know, set an example for people all over the world. So even though these, this group of incredible men, is it, is it all men at that point? A couple women toward the end. Okay. So men and women are literally saving lives in the city. Talk to me about, you know, the result of that op opposition and then, and then what happened to that group after it was shut down? I mean, the result ultimately is that they get shut down. You know, the city cuts their budget. Um, they a, a number of they throw a number of hurdles at them. Ultimately, you know, the city is forced to acknowledge what the rest of the country has already acknowledged, which is that paramedics are a thing. That this works. That this is an absolutely necessary system, and therefore um, they have no choice but to adopt it. So they do. The problem is they don't adopt this trend setting service, they start their own. And they're so insistent on wiping Freedom House off the map that they don't even use the doctors. You know, Peter Saffer, father of CPR, among the fathers of the modern ICU, world recognized globally as a foremost expert in pre-hospital medicine, lives in your city. You're trying to create an EMS system. You don't even call him to say like, hey, how should we do this? Not only is he not the medical director or is he not in charge of the system, but he's never even consulted. So and none of the physicians involved are consulted. The, the city service essentially begins to belly flop and they're forced to turn to Nancy Caroline, who was the, um, the medical director of Freedom House at the end. She's the one who wrote emergency care in the streets. And they say, hey, we need your help. And she says, fine, you know, um, since, you know, you guys are going to shut us down anyway, I'll come over and be your medical director, but you've got to hire all of my people. Any Freedom House person who wants to join the city, you have to hire them. So they do that. 
But being forced to hire someone is not the same as being forced to keep them. And so within a year, uh, about 50% of the Freedom House people who'd gone over had been weeded out. Um, they had, you know, a, a number of different things were thrown at them to make their lives miserable and to get the point across that they were not welcome. And, you know, a bunch of them finally said, fine, y'all have it. We're out of here. Those that stayed went on to have, you know, in most cases, very long careers with the city and very distinguished careers with the city. But it was not an easy transition by by any means. And, you know, the city went out of its way to hide the history. Nancy, when she came over, she had six a list of six demands. The city met them all except for the last one, which was that the, the day that the city took over, um, you know, took over Freedom House's operations, that there would be a ceremony, something to recognize the service that these guys had provided. That never happens. It just goes away. Um, they, you know, I have a, the letter from the mayor where he responds to her demands and he lists all five things that he's going to do. And again, the sixth one is that, that, that is not on the list is a recognition an official recognition of the service provided to the city. So the burying of this history began day one. Um, and it's, you know, it was, it, it was effective to the point that when I went there and started researching, nobody knew what this thing was, you know, people there I've talked to since Pittsburgh paramedics who didn't know this thing existed, physicians who didn't know this thing existed. Um, I know the city solicitor, he didn't know this thing existed. If you talk to people on the street, Uber drivers, people working at Permani Brothers, nobody's ever heard of this thing. And, you know, somehow this incredible piece of history, well, not somehow, but this incredible piece of history had been swept under the rug. And, you know, there are a lot of people who have waited a long time. Some have died waiting. Uh, for the story to come out and see the light of day. And how did you come across it yourself? Somebody once emailed me and said, hey, have you ever heard of this thing? And I wish I could find that email because I'd like to thank that person. But uh, it, um, I, I had, you know, I'd never heard of Freedom House. I had been through EMT school, had been through paramedic school, had spent a decade around this career field. I I thought I was fairly well versed in it. Um I'd never heard of this thing. And and when I was researching, I could find bits and pieces. So I knew that something had happened, but nobody had written a full account. So I didn't really know the full story. I mean, I had to, I had to dig it all out myself. I had to go to archives. I had to go to libraries. I had to dig up old newspaper stories from the time. I had to track down people who were there and interview them. You know, this, this story just didn't exist in its full form. And so, you know, it's such a great story. And again, the, more importantly than like, what happened is is who did it, and and everyone involved was just so fascinating, you know. Um, I just couldn't, you know. I was just, I was hooked on the story, you know. And I, here we are. Beautiful. Well, the book's called American Sirens. So, where can people find that and a thousand naked strangers? Uh, anywhere. Um, you know, luckily. Uh, Naked Strangers still it still continues to sell. Um, people still still read it, so it's you know it's it's out there in stores or Amazon. Same thing with Sirens. It's um you know it's 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 it, wherever you buy books, you can get it there. If you go online, you can get it there. But it's there. It's um they're they're both out there, ready for you to to discover. Brilliant. Well, I want to throw a few closing questions at you quickly if you've got time. Yeah, man. So the first one, we talked about your books. Are there any books that you love to re recommend written by other people? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. 
Yeah, I'll throw out a couple. So one that's related, um, Mountains Beyond Mountains by Tracy Kidder. Uh, it's an absolutely incredible story. Um, and I will just, I'll leave it at that. I'll say, just go pick up this book, read it. Um, you will, you will 100% not, uh, regret having read this. It's, uh, it, it's, it's an absolutely incredible book about a, about a doctor who works mostly in Haiti. Um, and it, it shows you what one provider is capable of doing, one dedicated provider is capable of doing, um, in terms of, you know, books, non-related that I recommend. Um, I, uh, gosh, there's so, so many that I love. Um, let's see what's, I'll just do one that I've read recently. Uh, let me see. Let me look around my office here. Find one that I found really particularly fascinating. And I'll, I'll give you some, uh, give you, um, oh, there's, there's a great book called uh, the fish that ate the whale. Um, it is, it's the story of, uh, it, it, uh, an, an immigrant He's he's Russian, maybe Ukrainian turn of the century comes to the U S you know, his classic American story comes to the U S penniless. And, uh, the only thing he has is ambition and the will. And he discovers down in Mobile, Alabama, bananas. And you know, this is a time when nobody's heard of the banana. Nobody's eating the banana. You know, it's a, it's a rarity because they, they go bad so quickly. And he begins, he tastes one and realizes it's, you know, immediately recognizes its potential. And uh, he, he finds a way to like, to, at first he gets the ones that are almost rotten and he sells those, you know, locally. And then as he gets more money, he's able to get one, he's able to get more and more and travel further and further with them. And he slowly, this, this guy slowly builds an empire um, to the point that he, not only challenges, but overtakes United Fruit, which might not sound like a lot, but there was a time when United Fruit was Amazon. It was one of the most powerful corporations on earth. And this was a guy who showed up in the US penniless and eventually, you know, within a couple of decades, takes over one of the most powerful corporations on earth. And he does it through his own will. And of course, his rise um, leads to uh, his downfall. He, you know, he becomes overly ambitious. He, um, he, he turns his back on some of his ideals and in his pursuit of riches and pursuit of power, um, he begins to take advantage of people who are less powerful than he is. He, he starts several Central American revolutions, um, you know, things that actions that reverberate to this day. Uh, but he, he overthrows governments that, um, that are not friendly to his banana business or his fruit business in Central America. And eventually, you know, all this causes his downfall, but it's, it's one of the most, first of all, most fat, like you don't think the banana is fascinating to you read the story and you're like, oh my God, this is like the world's craziest fruit, but it's also just this wonderful American parable. Um, if, you know, I've never read a story that captures the American dream in all of its glory and uh, pitfalls as succinctly as this one does. So the fish that ate the whale. Brilliant. Well, thank you. I don't think I've ever had that one mentioned before, but it does sound fascinating. It's interesting because I mean that you'd see that in the Roman Empire, the British Empire. I mean, all these these fish that became the whale, and then obviously another yeah. fish came and took them out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, here we are, right? Absolutely. All right. Well, the next question is: There a person or other people that you would love? To, excuse me, that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know. Do you know? Do you know Ginger Locke? No. Oh, and Ginger Locke. She runs a uh, podcast called Medic Mindset. She's a fantastic human being, but um, she's really one of those people that EMS is in her blood, and um, she just always brings such great insights. Um, she says things that. It come out of left field all the time and surprise me. So uh, I recommend that. And then it's a friend of mine by the name of Blake Davis. Um, he's crazy. He's he's one of the absolutely craziest people I've ever met in my life. He's hilarious. He's wonderful. Um, and he sort of led me into this, uh, you know, renaissance in my life. But um, he does disaster medicine and uh you know he started as a paramedic in in maine and now he travels all over the world and he's this like highly competent um really successful person and he started out just like all the rest of us in the back of an ambulance he just you know followed his curiosity and his passion and it brought him um to places i think a lot of us dream of going and so he's just, he's a really fascinating person Brilliant. Well, thank you for both of those. I'd love to connect with both of them. Are there any people left from Freedom House that, that are at a point where they'd be able to be interviewed? Because I mean, that'd be another incredible perspective from the people themselves, but I don't know how old they would be now. Yeah, they're they're in their 70s, but there are a handful. There are a couple of people that I was able to speak with that, you know, that are around that, that could be, um, that, that you could get for sure. Okay. I would be willing to to help you with some contact information if you want. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Thank you. Because I mean, obviously you've given us an amazing insight yourself, but to hear it from one of the voices, I think would be a powerful totally. addition to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, what do you do to decompress? Huh. Uh, I read. I read constantly. Um, it's, I, there are very few, especially as fast as the world moves right now, um, there are very few things that slow life down and force you to focus and block everything out quite like reading. Um, so I can't, I can't recommend that enough. And the other is I have to exercise. Um, if I don't, I can feel it. It starts to build up all this uh, nervous energy and malaise. It's like this weird mixture of like extra energy, anxiety, but like I guess malaise is the right word it, it, that comes in. It's just like you, you just feel blah when you don't. And then after a hard workout, I just always feel purified. I feel emptied, you know, and it's like you can start over fresh. And it's uh, those are the, to me, those, if I took those two things away, I, I, I would be a very miserable person to be around. Well, we talked about the weight gain that you had. Um, you know, what what was your health journey when you got off shift and you were sleeping and you were able to maybe access better foods and maybe a little bit more exercise? Kind of walk me through from the physically and mentally burned out paramedic to the next few years after that. I I wanted in my mind I romanticized like Andy Dufresne at the end of of um, Shawshank Redemption. You know, like I wanted to just crawl away and get as far from it as possible. And again, it's like luck would have it. Um, we moved to Los Angeles almost immediately after that. So if you want, if, if you want to, <laughs> to mentally cleanse yourself with geography, Southern California is 100% the place to do it. So on the one hand, I was able to get away from where I had been and distance myself physically from, from all this. Cause you know how it is. If you live in the city, you worked at every corner is a ghost. That was a big part of it. 
And then the other was just getting back into, if you don't work out for a little while, your body doesn't want to work out. It's very difficult to get yourself going. So I just started slowly, just got back into it, just started doing it. And within a couple of weeks, you know, I couldn't stop and it was like, all right, I'm, you know, like this is where I should be doing. And then the eating part was easy because I was in my thirties. You know, when you're in your twenties, you feel like, oh, I'll do whatever. But then all of a sudden one day you kind of look around and go, at some point, like they're going to be checking my cholesterol, right? Um, and so I just little by little, I started cutting out the things that, you know, the red meat and the pork and all the the things that that leave you. If I eat something and it makes me feel like crap, and it gets added to my list of maybe just, you know, maybe don't do this one again. And uh, it's tough in the beginning because nobody wants to cut certain things out, but you feel so much better when you do. Now, what about from the mental point of view? Obviously, you find writing very cathartic. Were there any other tools that you used? I don't know. I think, um, you know, I think figuring out, like, for me, well, so much of it is forward momentum, progress, which can probably be, um, you know, construed in, in several different ways or certainly looked at in several different ways or different ways to have forward momentum or progress. But to me, that was a big, not dwelling, you know, when you have nothing going on, you begin to look around, well, what, you know, do I just go back to where I was? But if you just keep every day, you do a little bit of whatever is coming next or whatever you want to come next and keep moving toward it, that feeling of, of having made progress slightly further than I was the day before, um, you know, that to me is, is, is how I kind of stay balanced. It's, it's when I'm sitting in place, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a road movie kind of person. I'm a road book kind of person. I like moving, traveling. I remember watching, uh, the walking dead and the, there was a season that ended with them coming upon the prison. They were like, Oh, we can come, we can, we can make, we can grow crops and farm. And I was like, grow crops. What the, like, <laughs> this was a show about you guys on the run. You know, you were on the move. Like I, 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 you know, forget that they were zombies. I totally was in when they were moving and they needed movement to survive the moment they were like, yep, nope. We're just going to hunker down here in a prison and grow crops. That was it for me. And it killed the, it killed the story. So progress to me progress is the most important thing beautiful love it all right well then for people listening where are the best places to find you online and any social media accounts um i have a website which gosh it feels so quaint um to have a website uh but it's that's kevinhazard.com and then i'm on on facebook twitter and instagram um goes by hazard on on twitter and instagram my name on facebook and uh i'm out there um you know reach out say hey beautiful well kevin i just want to say thank you so much um i'd had your first book recommended many many times but i'd never actually got around to, to buying it myself it was actually american sirens for some reason came across my radar and that's what really grabbed me so I own both of those now. American Sirens is on its way as we speak. So I am, you know, excited to read the second book. I'm so, you know, glad that you were able to educate us on the origin story of the very profession that we both adored and for being so generous with your time and coming on the podcast today. My daughter just got home. So my dog is starting to bark. Uh, hey, man, I, I can't thank you enough. You know, anytime I get the opportunity to talk about either of these two stories, both very dear to me. Um, I'm, I'm honored, um, you know, and, and the fact that people have recommended, 
you know, me or my book is um, so kind of bewildering. When I wrote it, I didn't think the world was going to notice. I certainly didn't think people from EMS were going to care. So that that people have, you know, taken to it the way that they have and, and you know, continue to pass on the word and say like, yeah, this guy got it right. I mean, I, I do not take that lightly, not for a second. And I, you know, I appreciate every one of those people for sure. It's a, it's a huge honor. It's a huge honor.